Now, uh, today we get to wrap up this series tandem, and uh, I want to begin our time with a question. And the question is, what do you complain about? Like, if I was to ask somebody in your life who knows you really well, if I was to ask your spouse, a good friend of yours, your parents, what do you complain about the most? What would they tell me? What would they say? Uh, I wonder if it's uh, Michigan winter weather. You know, it's like we love it until Christmas, and then after that, it's like, okay, let's get to spring. Uh, I wonder if you complain about drivers, (laughs) Other drivers, not you, not your driving, but other people's driving. Maybe you complain about politics or sports. What about me? I asked my wife earlier this week, okay, what do I complain about? And she was quick to answer, (laughs) moles. And I'm not talking about, you know, the things on your skin. I'm talking about the ones that burrow in the ground. Because here's the deal. Uh, We lived in this house for 12 years. In the backyard, uh, it backed up to some woods. And I'm telling you, for 12 years, I was at war with moles. And I did not win. I mean, I could not stop these things. It's burrowing all over. I tried everything. I, I kid you not, there was a time when I dug up my entire backyard and replanted it. Didn't work. And so we moved. I mean, eventually you gotta cut your losses, but I'm telling you, this new neighborhood we're in, very few moles, just absolutely love it. Uh, but that's me, what do you complain about? And uh, I'm guessing you've, you've probably already put it together. We're gonna to be looking at some scripture today where some people are complaining. And uh, we've been spending our time uh, over the last couple of weeks with the early church in the book of Acts. And last week, we were in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, and the church was thriving. Uh, in fact, let me just give you a uh, summary verse, kind of just captures how things were going in the early church at this time. This is from Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. It'd be pretty hard to come up with a, with a description of a community that's more thriving than that. But you, just, you fast forward just two chapters into chapter six, and something has disrupted this community. Let's take a look. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. There's complaining going on between two groups in the church. And you you ask, you know, well, what are they complaining about? And the answer is old people. No, I'm serious. They're complaining about old people. And some of you are just going, that is terrible. And others of you are going, boomers. I get it. I get it. No, okay, no, really, they're not, they're not complaining about old people. They're, they're complaining for, they're complaining on behalf of elderly people in the congregation that they complain about. And what exactly is going on here? Well, let's just leave that as a cliffhanger. We'll get to that in a few moments. But I want to talk about relational tension in the church because this is something that we experience. It's something that they experienced back in the day. It's something that we experience. And uh, you know what? This is normal. We should expect this because while Jesus is transforming us, we are not perfect yet. And so we will experience relational tension, and they did. And I think what's really important in this passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at is 
the choices that the early church made in the midst of this relational tension. Because the choices that they made here, I mean, these were choices that had the potential to limit the power of the gospel in their lives and in their church, or to help unleash the power of the gospel in their lives and in their church. And these choices stand before us today as well. And so as we talk about choices today, just understand the choices that we make today as we interact with these scriptures, I believe they will determine how effective we will be as a church in the Grand Rapids area. And the choices that you make today will have something to say about the impact of your faith, the influence that you have in your workplace and in your school and in your family. I'm talking about the spiritual influence that you have with your children. And the choices that you make today will shape your faith, your future faith, and whether or not you grow, continue to grow in your faith or or stall out and become stagnant. The choices we're going to look at today are are hugely important, so may God give us open hearts, and may we be receptive to the work that he desires to do in us and in our church community as a whole. So we're going to look at three choices that the early church made in this relational tension and conflict that they experienced, and the first one just has to do with this word right here, unity. Unity. So let's jump in, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. We already looked at this. I'm just going to read it again. In those days, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews. Okay, you got two different groups of Jews in this church community, and apparently they're not getting along. One is complaining about the other. Okay, who are these people and what is going on? Let's start with a map. Uh, Here's a map, uh, ancient world, Mediterranean world. Um, Hebraic Jews or Hebrew Jews, they were from uh, Israel. They were born and raised in, in Israel, like think Jerusalem. And the Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic is a word that means Greek, These were Jews who were born and raised outside of Israel in places like Alexandria, Egypt, or Antioch in Syria. So they're born and raised in different places. Now, four words that kind of capture the differences between these people. The four words are culture, language, Bible, synagogue. Because they were born and raised in different parts of the world, they were raised in different cultures, And so they came with different perspectives and worldviews and customs. This also led to different languages. The Hebraic Jews, they spoke a form of Hebrew called Aramaic. The Hellenistic Jews, you probably already guessed, their primary language was Greek. And so these two different groups, they speak different languages, actually led to different Bibles. By this, I don't mean different content in their Bibles. I mean different languages. The Hebraic Jews, their Bible's in Hebrew. The Hellenistic Jews, their Bible is in Greek. It's called the Septuagint, which I'm telling you is one of the coolest sounding words ever, Septuagint. Uh, And then lastly, synagogue. Because of all these differences, these two different groups of Jews, they actually worshiped in two different synagogues. 
And a synagogue in the ancient world was, for the Jews, probably the most similar thing for us as church, a weekly gathering, a religious uh, center for them uh, where they worshiped. And they worshiped in different languages in their different synagogues. So what you have here is two groups of people who have the same faith and in many cases the same ethnicity but they're, it's like they're separate from each other. In a lot of ways, they separate from each other. And so this now, this now has, something changes with the coming of Jesus Christ. These two different groups of, of people. Because with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, things begin to change. I mean, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter the Apostle Peter, he preaches this sermon in which he declares to the people of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was crucified for you. God raised him from the dead, and you need to place your faith in Christ and believe in him. And in that one day, 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem came to faith in Christ. And some of them were Hebraic Jews, and some of them were Hellenistic Jews. And now these two separate groups are thrown together in community in the church. Now they are part of one body. And the question is, how is that going? And we've already seen there is some complaining going on in the community. So, so what exactly are they complaining about? Well, let's read the rest of that verse. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The, the widows, the, the older women who were in many ways dependent on the generosity of the believers, they, they're not receiving their daily distribution of food. You, you have this minority group in Jerusalem of the Hellenistic Jews who are going to saying to the majority group, essentially, you are not taking care of grandma. You're taking care of your own widows, but you're not taking care of us. Now, uh, we know from last week that there were individuals in the church who had sold homes, sold properties, and then brought that money to the apostles to be distributed to people in need. And now what we see is that perhaps, perhaps those funds were not being distributed fairly. You are playing favorites. And so we have this relational tension, we have this relational conflict in the church community. Now, I got an easy solution for this. Easy solution for these guys. Because really what you have here is two different groups. They don't even speak the same language, different customs. They read from different Bibles. In fact, they're used to worshiping in different spaces. And so I got an easy solution. Let's just split them up. Okay, let's just split them up. Over here, we will have the first... Hebraic Church of Jerusalem, okay? And then over here, we will have the first Hellenistic Church of Jerusalem. And you all can worship in your language with your customs. You know, you can do your pews thing and, and your, you know, hymns. And over here, you can do your language, your customs. You all can have your drums, okay? You can do whatever you want. We'll keep in touch, all right? Because we all have one faith. We'll send each other Christmas cards. 
I mean, it'll be, it's perfect. It's a perfect solution. Just split them up and everybody will get along. There's just one problem. Just one issue here. And that is that Jesus had already said, this is not an option. This is not an option for the church. Well, what do you mean? Why not? Okay. There's this prayer that we have recorded in John's gospel. And it's a fascinating prayer because it's a prayer of Jesus, and he's actually praying for you, and he's praying for me. He's praying for future followers, future members of the church. And something that he says in this prayer is incredibly relevant to this conversation about unity in our differences, unity in our preferences. So let me read you part of this prayer. Jesus says, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. And he's talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. His prayer is that his followers would be united, that they would be one. In the same way that Jesus is united with his Father, he's talking about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect, unified relationship. Jesus' prayer is, may my followers, may the church be united like that. And why does he care about this so much? Well, there's one uh, other section of this prayer I want to share with you. He says, then, this is his prayer, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved, and have loved them. Then the world will know by the unity that's displayed among my followers. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them. You see, unity is evidence. Unity is evidence of the existence of Christ that God sent him. It's evidence for the gospel. When the followers of Jesus choose to pursue unity in their differences and in their diversity, it's evidence for what God is doing. And so this idea that, you know, hey, there's Hebraic Jews and there's Hellenistic Jews, this is split up. It'll be a lot easier. It, that would be, be anti-Jesus, that would be anti-gospel. And so there was a choice before the early church. A choice that could have limited the power of the gospel or could have helped to unleash it. And they could have limited it by separating and, and making it go in where they're comfortable. But instead, they chose to lean in and pursue unity, which helped to unleash the gospel. And so when we, as Jesus followers, choose to pursue unity in our differences and in our diversity, that's evidence for what God is doing and what he has done. So, so what does this mean for us? What, what does this mean for us as, as, as church, as in all of us together? And then what does this mean for us as individual Jesus followers? Well, let's talk about all of us together as a church. What does this mean for us? This, this means that as a church, we desire to pursue unity in our differences and in our diversity. It also means that we desire to be a diverse church in terms of 
skin color and political leaning and cultural background and socioeconomic status and not, and not diversity for diversity's sake, but because diversity more fully represents the kingdom of God, the beauty of the kingdom of God. And listen, what I'm saying here, this, this has nothing to do with what's going on in culture. It has nothing to do with what's going on in our society. It has nothing to do with, with what's in the news. It has nothing to do with what's going on in Hollywood. It has everything to do with what's in Scripture. This is God's heart for his church, that we would pursue unity with each other in our differences and in our diversity because it's evidence. Now, this also means that when we choose to separate and when we choose to retreat and isolate into different subgroups based on skin color or culture or political leaning, when we choose to separate in this way, again, that's, that's anti-Jesus. That's anti-gospel. It goes against the heart of God for his church because unity in the midst of our differences is evidence of what God is doing in our community. So that's, that's us. That's what this means for us as a church all together. Let, let's talk about what this means for us individually. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? A very challenging question for us. Will you bring unity? Will you bring unity? I mean, holiday season's coming up. And uh, you know what that means, family gatherings, which of course means getting together with people. There might be some relational tension. In fact, some of you are getting a little sweaty right now just thinking about some of the conversations, some of the interactions that you're going to have with extended family. Question, will you bring unity? Will you bring unity in the things that you say? Will you bring unity with your body language? Will you bring unity in the side conversations that you have in your family gatherings this Christmas? Will you bring unity? Now, uh, 2024 is right around the corner. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, of course you do. 2024 is a, it's an election year. And so we're going to be talking politics. It's going to be all over uh, the TV. It's going to be everywhere all year long. Question, will you bring unity? Will you bring unity to your church in this political season? And look, I'm not saying you don't have an opinion. Of course not. I'm not saying don't have a position. Of course you should have a position. I'm not even saying let's not have healthy debate around political issues. I'm just asking the question, will you bring unity to your church in this season? You know, I'm always challenging you. Get in a small group. You've you got to join a small group. You've got to share life with other believers. And I just, well, let's just be honest about things that can actually happen in a small group for a second. Because if you join a small group, if you get in community with other people, just got to warn you, there could be a Spartan in that small group. There could be a wolverine in that small group. God forbid there could be a buckeye in your small group. 
Listen, you get in a small group, you start sharing life with people, you might discover there's somebody in your small group who voted for Trump and would do it again. You might discover in that small group there's somebody who voted for Biden and would do it again. Will you bring unity to your small group? Will you allow Jesus to be the highest priority or will you elevate your preferences above, above unity with other believers? My friends, this is so important for us as a church. The choices that we make here, I'm telling you, this will impact our ability to effectively live out our mission in our city. Unity is evidence. But let's be real about this. In order to pursue this, this will be hard. This will be work. We will have to fight for this because it's so much easier to kind of retreat into little subgroups where everybody looks like us, sounds like us, believes like us, and so we just, we just get comfortable and then we complain about the other groups. And that's exactly what was going on in the early church. And so how did they sort this out? How did they work through this? Let's keep exploring. Uh, second choice I want to look at today uh, just has to do with word and deed. And so again, uh, we are in uh, Acts chapter 6. This is verse 2. So how did they deal with this? So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Is it just me or does that sound really harsh? <laughs> It's like, look, we need to be preaching. We don't have time for taking care of people. We don't have time for serving people. It's like preaching is important and serving widows is not, bottom line. Is that what they're saying? I mean, really? I don't think so. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, they said, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. They're saying designate seven godly individuals who will oversee this ministry to the widows so that we can focus on preaching and teaching. And so I don't believe that they're saying, look, look, this is beneath us, okay? We're the leaders, we're the preachers, serving widows, that's beneath us. I don't think that's what they're saying. I don't even think they're saying, look, preaching, that's up here, and serving widows is down here. It's a, it's a priority issue. I don't even think they're saying that. I believe what they're doing here is elevating both. They're promoting both. We've got to do both. We've got to preach the word, and we need to serve the widows and take care of their needs. We've been talking about this all series long. It's word and it's deed together. Now, where did they come up with this? I mean, where did they get this? We've got to elevate both. The answer is Jesus. I mean, these guys, the apostles, they walked with Jesus for three years. They witnessed how Jesus lived out word and deed. Everywhere that he went, he preached the kingdom and he healed people. Uh, just an example. Uh, this is from Luke's Gospel. Uh, chapter 9, verse 6. You may remember this, actually, from week one of this series. So they set out, and this is talking about the disciples, so they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere, word and deed. 
And see, this is so important. Given the choice, here's the choice. Given the choice between word and deed, which one do you choose? Jesus and the early church said both. It's got to be both. We have to do both at the same time. And that choice has the potential to either limit the impact of the gospel if you choose one or the other, or has the power to help unleash the gospel when you choose both together. So it's got to be both. Now here's the challenge for us. I think that most of us naturally gravitate to one. Most of us would say, okay, let's talk about a church that really gets it that's really living out the gospel. That's a church that's deeply involved in their community, serving needs, meeting needs. That's a church that really gets it. Others of us would go, no, 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 no. A church that really gets it is a church that preaches the word and invites people to believe. Or missions, okay, missions, the, the highest level of missions when you're, you're going places and, and, and healing people and providing things like clean water and medicine because that's what Jesus would do. And others of us would go, no, 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 real missions, that's planting churches, that's translating the Bible, that's preaching the gospel. I think we gravitate toward one or the other, and maybe it's because of the kind of church you grew up in if you grew up in a church. And the challenge here is, We've got to choose both. We've got to elevate both. So let me, let me encourage you to do something in this season. Whichever one you naturally gravitate toward, lean into the other in this season. If you're going, you know, I just, I naturally gravitate toward the word and the depth of scripture. I would encourage you, lean into serving, lean into meeting people's needs in this season, because it's got to be both in tandem. I mean, just very practically, go to adabible.info, hit the serve button. There's a list of different ways that you can serve both in Ada Bible Church or through Ada Bible Church in the community but pursue both. Lean into the one that's less natural for you. If you're the opposite and you're just like, yes, serving, meeting people needs, that's just where my heart goes. I would encourage you to lean into the word in this season. We already mentioned 2024, right around the corner. This is the time of year when people make commitments, make resolutions. Okay, this year I'm going to be about, you know, whatever. Well, maybe 2024 is a year where you are about the word. Maybe you choose a reading plan for the scriptures and just, you know, I'm going to read through the scriptures. It doesn't have to be the whole Bible necessarily, it could be, but just I'm going to commit to being in the word. Whatever one you naturally gravitate toward, I would encourage you to lean into the other. This is a choice that the early church made that I think helped unleash the power of the gospel. Now, there's one more choice that we need to look at. One more choice that is absolutely critical to the effectiveness of the early church. This last choice has to do with this word right here, the word obedience. So where we're at in the story, there's this relational tension. The widows are being overlooked. The apostles say, hey, let's appoint some leaders. So they go to the church and say, you tell us who, you know, who we should appoint, and then we'll bless them. And so here's where we go. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, 
and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Jerusalem, uh, to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the plan is being implemented. Everything is going forward. But what I really want us to see is the impact of their word and deed plan. Verse 7. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the word is spreading, disciples are being made, and there's something very interesting that I think is important for us at the end there. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's a strange phrase, don't you think? Priests became obedient to the faith. I mean, often when we talk about somebody becoming a Jesus follower, we might describe it as like, well, they, they believed in Jesus, or they trusted in Christ, or uh, they asked Jesus into their heart, or something like that. But we usually don't say, yes, he became obedient to the faith. <laughs> it's, just, it's a strange way to put it. But I think it's really, really important. There's something huge here. And so what does it mean? I might put it like this. Genuine faith in Jesus always leads to obedience. Trusting in Christ and what he accomplished for you on the cross should always lead to inviting Christ to have a leadership role in your life. Genuine faith always leads to obedience. Why is this? Because Jesus is not just Savior, he's also Lord. Lord and Savior. Lord is a word that simply means boss, leader, king. Now, something I want to be crystal clear about. We don't obey Christ in order to win God's approval, win his forgiveness, and win his love, or earn it. That's not why we obey Christ. The truth is, the gospel is that at the cross, we receive God's love, approval, and forgiveness through Christ as a free gift. And we respond back to him out of gratitude with obedience. So genuine faith always leads to obedience. Now, I want to talk about the, the priests specifically and how this played out for them and why it might be important for us. So a bunch of priests become obedient to the faith. Now, pre, what was a priest? In ancient Israel, a priest worked at the temple. So here's a picture of uh, what the first century temple might have looked like. And the temple was all about the sacrificial system. The priests helped facilitate the sacrificial system. So how this would work is that if you were an ancient Israelite, and you had done something wrong, you had sinned, and you, you knew you needed to be forgiven, the way that you would be forgiven is that you would travel to Jerusalem, you would travel to the Jerusalem, you would either bring with you or purchase an animal, most likely a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb. You would bring that lamb to the temple to be sacrificed on your behalf, and the priests would help facilitate that sacrifice for you. And the idea is that the blood of the animal, as it is shed, covers over your sin. Now imagine being one of those priests, 
coming to understand what Jesus had accomplished for you. How Jesus died, his blood was shed on that cross for the forgiveness of sins. There must have been a moment as a priest where you just went, the whole priest thing is now obsolete. The temple, Jesus has replaced the temple. These priests must have just gone, this changes everything. I mean, if you're a priest and you come to faith in Christ, this means you're walking away from your job as a priest. This means you're walking away from the temple. You're walking away from your livelihood. You're walking away from your reputation and your standing in the community. This changes everything. And for these priests, their obedience to the faith was so costly. And here's the challenging question. Is it costly for you? We talk about this idea that Jesus, when you really understand this changes everything, has it for you. We talk about Savior and Lord. Have you made Christ Lord of your life? Or is there an area of your life where you need to give him leadership, you need to give him authority, and just go, this changes everything, therefore this needs to change as well. And I just wonder what that area of your life might be. And I don't know what it is, but I do believe that the Spirit of God is at work through his scriptures and at work in your heart, and so I just wonder, I'm just gonna throw out some ideas of what that area of your life might be, that you need to give Jesus leadership of. I wonder if it's your words, the things that you say. I mean, we just got done talking about this idea. Will you bring unity with the things that you say? Is it time to give Jesus leadership, to make him Lord of that area? Is it, is it your entertainment choices, the things that you watch, the things that you listen to, and you're just going, a lot of this stuff just doesn't honor God. It just doesn't honor God. God. I wonder if it's uh, your money. I mean, you've invited Jesus to, to lead so many areas of your life, but not your finances. I wonder if it's your sexuality. And I know that there's a bunch of us that there was a time in our lives when Jesus did change everything. And truly, everything was on the table. Everything in our lives was on the table for Jesus to, to mess with and to lead and to guide. But these days, it's more like, yeah, Jesus changes some things. <laughs> Jesus changes a couple things. Is it time to put it back, all of it back on the table? And to just say, you gave all for me. And so help me to surrender all to you. This was a choice that the believers in the first century made. Obedience. And it's a choice that either has the power to limit the gospel 
by not really inviting Jesus' leadership or has the potential to unleash the power of the gospel in our lives. Because when Jesus is changing you, when Jesus is transforming you, people around you are going to go, what is up with you? What's going on with you? Why are you, why are you doing this? And it's an opportunity to talk about who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life. It unleashes the power of the gospel. And so we're talking about choices today. And these three choices, just put them back up on the screen here as we, as we wrap up. These three choices have the potential to shape your future. Shape your family. These three choices have the power to shape our church. And so I would just ask you, what kind of person do you want to be? And what kind of faith do you want to have? And what kind of church do we want to be together? And what choice do you need to make today? So as we close, I just want to, I want to pray for us. But before I pray, I just want to remind you of uh, two things. Next week, I want to give you two reasons you got to come back next week. Reason number one. Christmas offering. It's a huge weekend for us as a church. I would just encourage you to bring uh, a special gift for your church next weekend. Secondly, secondly, next weekend is our leadership transition weekend where Jeff will literally hand the baton of leadership off to me. It's a very special weekend for our church, and we want to set aside some time to look forward as a church and also to look back and just recognize Pastor Jeff's faithful leadership over the last 40 years. And so hope you're able to join us next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your scriptures that reveal your heart to us and also reveal what you desire for us as individuals and as a church. God, we want to be the church that you desire us to be in this community. And so, God, would you be at work in our hearts? Would you be at work in our relationships? God, help us to honor you in all that we do. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here this weekend. Looking forward to next weekend. We'll see you.